pray. Father, to think that with a word, a billion failures disappear. God, that you command the wind and the waves, and you send them where to go. So, Father, we look at that story, we look at that majesty, we look at that strength and that power. Father, we, we too want to bring you such glory. We too want to demonstrate such obedience. And so here we are saying, so will I. Father, wherever you lead, wherever you prompt, we're yours. Father, to think that you have chosen that life of surrender to give yourself for all people of all places scattered around this world, Father. So we look to our Savior, we look to our King, we look to this Christ, and we say, so will I. We follow his example. And so, Father, may we come before you now in that state of submission and surrender ready to receive your word once more and to be changed and to be led by you. Be with us now, Father, and be glorified in this moment. In Jesus' precious, sacred, and holy name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, thank you, Josh, so much. Thank you, Sarah, and regularly the rest of the crew. Thanks, Matt, for doing that for us. Monday, great. Can you just put your hands together for this wonderful team of worship leaders? I love it. Such a privilege to be able to, to be in God's house and to worship and to praise alongside one another. I hope you all are having a great day today. Hope you've had a great weekend. Would you guys have one tap for this weekend? Pretty, pretty standard weekend in the Smith household for us on Friday. Uh, it's my day off, more or less, and so I took the two older kids out of the house so that Jennifer could get caught up on some of her work obligations, and then Friday night is movie night in the Smith household. We, we try to do that whenever we're in town, and we, we take turns, basically. Every member of the family gets an opportunity to choose their movie. We alternate weeks, and so this week was Annabelle's Choice, and we had just finished reading Harry Potter, the first book in that series as a family. Never done that before, and so my kids had never seen Harry Potter, so they got a chance to compare book to movie, and that was pretty fun. Uh, Saturday was kind of like the chores day. Uh, a lot of things around the house. We started building a, a tree house over the summer, and so we finished phase one a couple of weeks ago. Yesterday was the start of phase two, and we've got quite an undertaking on our hands, but that was pretty fun. And then uh, yesterday evening, it was cool because Jennifer made this really awesome spread of like pulled pork sandwiches and homemade chicken wings and potato skins, and we had all this kind of like game day food to celebrate the NBA being back, and we watched the Thunder game. It was a fun little Fun little weekend, you know? So, I mean, that, that was kind of what we did. I don't, I don't know about you, uh, but I, I share with uh, you those events because I don't know how we really planned it. It just kind of evolved. I mean, we did have a couple of discussions a day or two in advance saying, okay, what are, you, what are we going to try to do on Friday? What are we going to try to do on Saturday? But more or less, it was just a, a natural flow to the progression. So, when you think about your weekend and what you did, how did you plan it? H how did it arise? 
And the reason I ask is because I think we all have different approaches a lot of times to life and into how we kind of orchestrate our days and how we plan our day. Some of us are on this end of the spectrum where we really love to plan. Raise your hand if you're the planner, right? You really like to have things figured out. Okay, several of you here today. These are the folks that love the schedule, right? We got an itinerary and we are going to stick to the schedule, right? We're going to make these things happen. We're going to know in advance. But then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got people that are a little bit more spontaneous. Raise your hand if you try to be a little bit more spontaneous. I, I see that a lot of y'all are married to each other. That's really great. And in the spontaneous crew, uh, this is like, I don't know. We'll see what happens. Whatever happens, happens. I don't know if we'll have time. Let's just see what life brings us today. And so you have these two ends of the spectrum that typically influences how you prepare for your day or your weekend, whatever it is. And I think the reason we gravitate to one end of the spectrum or the other, or maybe we're in between, is because for whatever reason, those are the things that we think are going to help us give meaning to our day. Right? It's that kind of philosophy that we, we think will help provide some form of meaning to that experience. So if you're the planner, a lot of times you tend to be task-oriented. And so I get meaning out of being able to see that things were accomplished and things could be scratched off my list and I can see that I was productive. Right? The spontaneous side, a lot of times it's about making memories and living in the moment. And that's going to give you a sense of meaning and value through your day. And so those mindsets and philosophies are typically driven by that pursuit or that subconscious desire to, to create some form of meaning in your day. But then what happens? Life, right? And all the unexpected stuff gets thrown in there, things you don't anticipate, things that you can't foresee. And somebody gets sick, your lawnmower breaks, this was out at the store, or this thing happened, a pandemic occurs, and all these things that you have, your philosophy that you utilize in life to try to maintain that control and give you that meaning gets disrupted. And so it's a given that at some point, be it a day, be it a week, be it a month, a year, whatever, you're going to go through these stretches where all of a sudden your days feel less than meaningful. They're going to feel monotonous or mundane or hectic and chaotic and out of control, and that's going to create a very unsettling experience for many of us. And the reason I call this to your attention this morning is because what I want us to embrace and remember today is that each and every day, every day that you wake up and put breath in your lungs and put your feet on the floor, each and every day is filled with meaning. It is filled with significance. It is rich with opportunity and purpose. But the way in which we discover that meaning is not by gravitating towards our impulses and towards our desires and managing control, but through surrender. The way we find that meaning, that significance, is to start each and every day offering a prayer, falling, falling on our knees and saying, not my will, but yours be done. Not my plans, not my dreams, not my ambitions, but yours be done. And it's that act of surrender that infuses richness of meaning and purpose into our day. And what I want us to embrace this morning is to not just understand that philosophy of surrender, but to discover once again and remind each other that our God is worthy of such surrender. He is worthy of such devotion. He is worthy of such love. 
And so let's encourage one another with that mindset today. Grab your Bibles, turn to Ephesians 6. Right now, if you don't have a Bible um, at home or in your possession, let us know. We always want to know that so that we can gift you with one of those. And so even if you're at home, you're like, man, I don't have one, then you can send us an email and we will make sure that you get one. If you're here and you don't have one, let us know. We'll make sure that you get one. Uh, But Ephesians 6 is where we are today. We're continuing our series through the household code. Special thanks to Brian Briscoe last week for filling in in my absence, giving us a a much needed and much welcomed and appreciated vacation. Uh, He did a phenomenal job as always. He's filled in for me before. And one of the things that I love about Brian, and I, I told this to him after I had a chance to listen last week, he just does a great job of being faithful to the text and sharing the gospel, and and he does it in such an authentic way. So uh, a serious appreciation for him and for his family uh, allowing him to come out and do that for us last week. Uh, So he kept us moving through this progression that we've been looking at since the end of chapter 5 that focuses on the household codes. We've been looking at the relationships between wives and husbands, and last week was children and parents, and we're going to continue that today. But I want to remind you as we get ready to read this that this is all kind of falling under these consequential, I guess you could say, umbrellas, all these themes that that tie together and support one another. So we're talking about the household codes because this is under this umbrella of submitting to one another in Christ, right, in this overarching theme that you see in 521. But that idea of submission was really kind of driven by being filled with the Spirit, that when you're filled with the Spirit, you're going to live a life of wisdom and worship and submission. But you're being filled with the Spirit. Why? Because you want to be children of light, Right? And you want to shine in the darkness, and you want to demonstrate that sort of light in the midst of a darkened world, and you're doing that. Why? Because you want to walk in the way of love that you see at the beginning of chapter 5. All of this builds on itself. And so we're going to continue in that discussion, but today we look at a very unique and very interesting subject matter within the household codes as we look at this discussion on slaves and masters. Now this is a tricky one because a couple of things can happen when you read a passage like this in the scripture. On one hand, you, you see a, a passage that speaks to slaves and masters in the relationship, and probably one of the questions that you're going to naturally arrive at is, is the Bible condoning slavery? Right? The fact that it's just speaking about these relationships, does this mean that the Bible is tolerant towards slavery in that practice? That's a question that a lot of people will ask. Or maybe you don't ask that question, But you look at it and you see that in today's context, we don't have the institution of slavery functioning and legalized in our society. And so you just automatically assume, well, this doesn't apply to me. And you just kind of skip right over it and you miss some of the messages that might be embedded within a passage like this. And so we're going to try to take both of those questions on and and bring it into a very applicable sense for our context today as well. But I will say on the front end, It is a a little bit of a different passage. And so let's read it together and we'll walk through it. Chapter 6, starting in verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord and not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Okay, so here's how I want to try to tackle this passage today. I want to first, by just spending some time by looking at the historical 
context within which this passage falls, <clears throat> get a better understanding of what this practice of slavery kind of looked like at that point in time. And then after we've spent some time looking at the historical context, we'll, we'll walk through the passage both kind of fundamentally as well as kind of zoom out and just try to get an overarching theme to see how we can apply it to our lives today. And so the first thing that we need to, to look at from a historical perspective is to recognize that this was a pretty common practice at this point in time. Uh, based on the research that I was able to, to go through this last week, around 60 million slaves were estimated in the Roman Empire at this point in time. That would equate to about one-third of the population. Okay, so that's pretty pervasive. When you're talking one in three people would be considered a slave, right? And so one of the questions that we ask ourselves is, well, then why isn't there just this outright call for an abolition of slavery in the Bible, right? Why would this be uh, something that wasn't challenged in Scripture. Well, what we're going to see is that it is challenged in Scripture, but the actual call for abolition didn't exist for a lot of different reasons. One was the wide acceptance of this practice at this point in time, right? It, it was so uh, integrated into every element of society, both socially, politically, economically, legally, there really wasn't a question of should this institution exist at that point in time. Right? There was no government that was calling for the abolition of it. Even the slave rebellions that took place at that time, when they were rebelling, they weren't calling for an outright abolition of the practice either. And so it's kind of just this acceptance that the question didn't even exist. Now, part of the reason it was so widely accepted is that it was very different than what you and I might often think of when we hear the word slavery. And that's one of the things that you have to do anytime you're reading the scripture is think about what kind of cultural constructs or ideas am I bringing into this text that might change what it actually meant at that point in time, right? So when you hear the word slavery, because of our nation's history, we have an immediate picture that comes to mind, do we not? Right, we, we, we know what that looks like, and we typically equate it to what we see and saw in, in our culture, even the lingering effects of that practice, okay? But that was very different than what you saw here, okay? Let me give you some examples. Um, for, for example, there were certain rights and privileges that, that would be afforded to slaves that made this a very different sort of experience at this point in time. If you were a slave of a Greek owner, you had certain rights. You had the right to own property. You could even own your own slaves. You, you could even seek employment outside of your responsibilities within the household. Slaves had different privileges and different positions that were wide variety in nature, right? You could be serving in a privileged position in a government official's household. It could be a very challenging position like working in the mines and then everything in between. Uh, you would have positions in agriculture, in business, in the medical field. And so there's a wide variety of ways in which uh, slaves were integrated into society. And so a lot of times the assumption is, well, well every slave was oppressed and desiring their freedom, when in reality that wasn't always the case. In fact, there are examples of many people that saw that there were certain stability and benefits and security that people had as slaves, and so some people actually sold themselves into slavery to benefit from those securities, right? So it was very different. Now, hear me. This is not a conversation that goes, hey, it wasn't a big deal, right? So what? Slavery was very... This is not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to articulate for you is that it was different, okay? It was very different, and we have to recognize those differences, okay? They, there was a different way in which they were viewed within society. Now, at the end of the day, it still was kind of 
at the discretion of the master and how that slave's experience was going to go. Now, generally speaking, most masters treated their slaves well because they saw that as the more natural way for uh, uh, that relationship to work well. But obviously, there were numerous examples of cruelty and oppression and abuse. Okay, but it was a very different practice and it was a very different looking institution than what we saw in our nation's history. But at the heart of it, there were still major, major issues. And that's what this passage is ultimately going to challenge, was the mindset behind it. Okay, so let's take a look at this mindset. To, to try to capture the mindset of the day, I'm going to read to you a quote from Aristotle, obviously one of the influential figures of antiquity, and listen to what he says about this practice of slavery. He says, For where there is nothing common to ruler and ruled, there is not friendship either, since there is not justice. For example, between craftsman and tool, soul and body, master and slave, the latter in each case is benefited by that which uses it. But there is no friendship nor justice towards lifeless things. For there is nothing common to the two parties. The slave is a living tool, and the tool a lifeless slave. That was the thinking, right? And that is exactly the mindset of prejudice, racism, oppression, right? And we need to heed those words with some level of introspection because Aristotle is influential. He's influenced our ways of thinking with logic, philosophy, ethics, physics, so many different things. And you think about our nation's history and you look back on it as a believer and you ask yourself, how was it possible that Christians could condone such an act of uh, oppression? Well, a lot of things took place that would allow that way of thinking to permeate even our society as believers, one is syncretism, right? This idea that my politics and my economic values are greater than my spiritual ones. And so I'm going to advocate for this institution because of what it means for me politically, what it means for me economically, and I'm going to turn a blind eye. That was one reason. And sadly, that way of thinking still exists very much so today. The other reason is because people just, quite frankly, didn't know how to read the Bible, Right? A lot of times you can just read through something without thoughtful analysis and use it to justify your stances. We have to learn how to read the Bible together. But it, make no mistake, it can be misused for, for avenues and conduct that are completely counter to what God would desire. Right? And so at the heart of it, be it in our nation or theirs, is this idea that somebody was less than. As Aristotle would say it, they were a lifeless tool. As we would say it, they're three-fifths a person. But the object and the mindset is the same. And it's that mindset that Paul is absolutely going to confront in a very direct and a very intentional way. Okay, so, so how does he do it? Right, essentially what, what Paul is going to do is he's going to take this issue on uh, with this idea that rather than attack an institution, I'm going to go after the heart, right? Which is a great lesson for us, right? Because that's the more natural way. There's this other quote that, that I found in my studies that I, I wrote down, forgot to write down who said it, so I apologize. But it wasn't me. Somebody smarter than me said this. I think this is great. He says, there's no need to campaign to abolish slavery or challenge an institution because redemption takes place within existing social structures, no matter what they are. 
And the goal is to reach a heart and a mind within those structures and conform it to Jesus. And as those hearts and minds conform more and more to Jesus, the structures begin to break and change from the inside out. (laughs) I love that. Essentially, what we see is the wisdom of God through the revealing of his word through Paul understands that this gospel is going to confront numerous different institutions and structures. And so the goal is not, well, let's break down these institutions. Let's break down these structures so that we can reach people. The idea is the gospel can go within any of those structures, reach hearts and minds. And as it reaches hearts and minds, those things are conformed and changed. And then the institutions break down. That's what Paul does. And that's what makes this such an incredibly masterful text. It's amazing. And so I want us to take a look at it. And so let's, let's work through it uh, kind of verse by verse for a little bit. And then we'll, we'll zoom out and look at some of the obvious takeaways. So he begins by saying, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. So uh, the idea here of respect and fear could also be translated as fear and trembling. All right, and, and when you hear the idea of fear and trembling, a lot of times that makes us think of, of an actual fear, right? And, and so what we don't want to take away from a text like this is that the, the idea or the message is that you should be afraid of your earthly masters. This is not a word of, of cowardice or anything like that. It's really more of humility, which is why the NIV chooses to translate with the word respect, right? And so the idea is, If somebody's ruling over you, you're naturally probably going to have some form of animosity, some form of resentment, and you're going to see yourself wanting to to revenge or seek retribution, whatever that human impulse exists. But you need to stay humble regardless of your status, right? That you need to have a constant awareness of your own shortcomings, of your own failings, and maintain humility no matter your position, And that humility needs to be complemented with sincerity, or in this case, single-mindedness, right? A single focus. So part of what he's advocating for the slaves to keep in mind here is that, listen, this is where God has placed you. Focus on it, right? Give it your your sole attention. Zero in on these responsibilities that have been given to you and, and focus nowhere else. And so even just by looking at those initial descriptions, Even though we don't have that institution of slavery taking place in our society today, we can still look at those words of instructions and ask if that's how we're living out in our faith. Is your faith marked with humility and single-mindedness? Right? Do you have that ability to, to maintain that sense of awareness of your own shortcomings, your own limitations, so that you are anchored in humility? Are you able to, to move forward with a single-minded focus on what it means to follow Christ? See, a lot of times where I think we fall victim is that we'll follow Christ, but with a sense not of humility, but of entitlement. All right, God, I'm yours, but here's what I'm going to need. Right, I need, I need you to do this, and I need you to provide this, and then I'm going to need to have this, and I can only do it at this time and in this way. And so our walk looks more like a walk of entitlement more than humility. Or, or maybe it isn't really single-focused, right? We, we cultivate a faith that gives God some of our time, but not all of our time, right? We tend to our faith uh, occasionally, throughout the week. But then we've got all these other things that we need to pay attention to, right? We've got, we've got our jobs, we've got our families, we've got our interests, we've got our hobbies, and, and these all are kind of seen as segregated compartments. And so even just with the first verse, it's no, seriously, focused single-mindedly on what it is that Christ has given to you. Maintain that sense of humility. 
Now he continues from there and he adds to this description and he says, obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. This is an interesting word that Paul is, uh, many scholars believe, kind of created because you can't find it anywhere else in the New Testament or even really in antiquity. And it's this idea of eye service, right? Do, do this just when they're watching. And, and it creates this sense of if you are serving in a way to just win their approval when they're watching you, then you're not doing it the right way. And I think that speaks to us on a lot of different levels because a lot of times you and I also seek to only do things to win the approval of others, right? And, and we maintain this walk or this image, whatever it is that we want others to see, and that's what we put forth, right? And we're somebody different in public than we are in private, right? And, and we put an external show on for people to, to give us praise and to applaud us, and we curate these nice little social media lives, and we put it out there for people to see. But on the inside, behind closed doors, where fewer people can see, it's a very different story. And so God is challenging that even in the life of the slaves, saying, listen, don't just work when they're watching, right? Serve even when they're not watching, right? Let this come from your heart. Now, listen to what is actually taking place that I think is so masterful about that. Paul is actually speaking a spirit of freedom within him, right? It's the same kind of idea when Jesus says, hey, if somebody asks you to carry their pack for one mile, carry it two. Right? It's this idea that I'm going to work harder than he's asked me to work. I'm going to go above and beyond what they've asked me to do because I'm the one in control of what it is that I can do, the manner in which I put forth the effort, how much effort I put forth. I'm the one that's going to demonstrate my freedom by continuing to go above and beyond even what they've asked. <laughs> and so by empowering into greater work, he's actually letting them speak into that spirit of freedom that's riding right underneath this text, right? So it's not just for eye service. It's going above and beyond something that we should do as well. Then he continues, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord and not people. And this is where you really begin to find the linchpin that has already been teased throughout this word of instruction and this idea of understanding that in these relationships, who you're really serving is the Lord and not people. And so serve wholeheartedly, Right, think about that word. The, the word wholeheartedly is eagerness or excitement, enthusiasm. So let that sink in for a moment, okay? Imagine being a slave who is brutally oppressed, right? Who is, is facing all sorts of opposition. And Paul just said, wake up each day and be excited about it. Embrace that role and that situation with enthusiasm. And you have to ask yourself, how in the world is that possible. And Paul's answer is, is because who you're really serving is the Lord and not people. And that's where the enthusiasm comes from. This is the spirit of Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is where he's sowing that seed of how we can find meaning in every situation and context right, to, to do so wholeheartedly. And he provides that incentive saying that the Lord's going to reward all of those for the good that they've done, whether slave or free, right? So he, he brings up the reminder of the reward, right, that, that God's going to see it, re, regardless of whether the earthly experiences see it, God's going to see it. You will be rewarded for such a posture, for such a life. 
And, and yet, when Paul is bringing up this message of reward, he uses somewhat of a transition statement by saying, God is going to reward them regardless of slave or free. And he brings forward this idea of equality, right, that hadn't really existed yet in these particular verses, right, that, that God sees slave and free as the same. And so with that, uh, I, I guess, kind of equalizing there at the end of that paragraph, he uses that to transition to a word towards the masters. Now, now think about this. When we think about these household codes, we've said on several occasions that a lot of what was being said was to be expected, right? It, it wasn't you know, off the wall to, to realize, oh, wives have obligation to their husbands in this particular point in time, right? And it's not off the wall to think, oh, okay, slaves have obligations to their masters. What was so radical about this passage was when Paul said, well, now, husbands, here's your obligation. That was radically different. And what he laid before them was incredibly powerful. Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And now he's about to do the same thing. So we're going to see that the sentence and the amount of words are far fewer than everything he's just said for the slaves, but the message is equally powerful, if not more so. Because how does he begin? He says, masters, treat your slaves the same way. <laughs> everything I've just said to them, you do as well. What an incredible statement. This is the golden rule coming to life in these household codes. This, this is love your neighbor as yourself being brought to fruition in the nature of this relationship. Love them, treat them the same way. Don't threaten them, right? The, the idea of threat would be to, to level that leverage of potential harm and vindication over them. Don't, don't conduct yourself in that way. Don't create a relationship like that. That's, that's going to undermine what God desires for you and what God desires for your household. Don't offer those threats. And why not? Because there is no favoritism for him who is in heaven. I love the way he says it. Their master is your master. <laughs> Same playing field. He levels it all right there in that moment. And he reminds them there is no favoritism with him who is in heaven. And I think that's such an important word for you and me to consider this morning, right? Because when you think about how we might begin to drift into this, this mindset that can lead towards prejudice and racism and bias and oppression and all those different things, it typically starts with this idea of superiority versus inferiority. Right, that, that there's something in our life that makes us think we are superior. Or maybe we, we struggle with the other end and we, we think that we're inferior and we create these distinctions, right? And so we begin to look down on other people and we, we begin to pursue and try to acquire as much status building as we possibly can so that we can have that sense of superiority. I will look at the job that I have, look how much money I make, look at the house that I buy, the car that I drive, the neighborhood I'm in, all these things that make us feel better so that when we look on people that don't have that job, don't have that paycheck, don't have that house, don't have that car, don't live in that neighborhood, we see them as inferior, right? Or we look at people based on their race, their gender, their age, their socioeconomic status, and we see a distinction and we make ourselves feel better and we see other people as less. And that's the very seed in the same heart that was existing in this practice of slavery then and in our nation and still continues to linger even today. That's what he's attacking. Here's the reality. 
doesn't matter who you meet, doesn't matter where they're from, doesn't matter where you encounter them, their master is yours. And he sees you all the same. Your status, no matter how much you've acquired on this earth, congratulations, means nothing in his eyes. What he is after is the heart. And so how is your heart? So let's zoom out for a moment and see what what Paul is effectively doing here. This is is what I love. This is how he's changing it from the inside out, right? He's he's going after their hearts, but what he's doing is he's changing culture by creating culture, right? What he's doing is rather than calling for this abolition of slavery and challenging this institution, which tends to be the way that we like to go, right? Let's go after the institution. Let's go after the, the markers or whatever it is, when in reality, what we need to do is go after the heart before people ever arrive at the institution, Right? Because if we get their hearts before they arrive at the institution, the institutions will change. And so how do you do that? Well, Paul, he gives them something else to be a part of. He creates culture knowing that it will eventually change culture. And so what he's doing is what's remarkable about this text and in all of his conversations about the body of Christ here in Ephesians and about the church, he has brought the slave in and gave them equal footing fully integrated into the body of Christ. And so what he's done is he said, no matter what your distinctions are out there, no matter what roles you play, out, play on out there, when you come here, you're brother and sister. <laughs> he gives them the church. He says, here, everyone is valued. Everyone matters within these walls, within the church. There is neither Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, because all of us serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? It changes everything. And so where does that leave us? How do we take a message like that and apply it to our lives today? Well, part of what I would encourage us to consider is this thread that weaves within all of it, right? That understands the significance of seeing Jesus as Lord in everything. What, what Paul has done is he's taken this idea of submitting to one another and he's shown us how it impacts every single relationship. Every arena is an opportunity to demonstrate the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. What he is saying then is that even here in your home, in these most simple and most intimate relationships, you are being given an opportunity for faith and worship. So how you talk to your spouse or your loved one matters. How you treat them each and every day, regardless of how the plan developed, whether it was expected or unexpected, how you respond to the people in your home, how you speak to your wife, how you respond to your husband is an opportunity for you to demonstrate the lordship of Jesus Christ and worship him. How you treat your children, how you talk to them when you put them down at night, how you speak with your parents when they ask you to do something, when you begin to to figure out discipline, when you try to figure out purpose, all those things are opportunities for faith and worship for you to demonstrate the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. 
When you think about how you're going about school and your work and your studies and your, how you're going to relate to your colleagues or the projects that you have at work, all the ways in which you go about those things are an opportunity for faith and worship and for you to demonstrate the lordship of Jesus Christ. Every day has meaning. Every moment has significance for you to declare the lordship of Christ in your life. And that's what Paul is inviting us into. That's what God is breathing into each and every one of us. But I assure you, the only way we truly discover it is through surrender. Right? The only way we really begin to practice it is if we wake up and we hit our knees and we pray, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And so can I remind you that he is worthy of such prayers? Because when you pray to him, you're praying to the one who bled and died for you. You're praying to the one who conquered the grave for you. You're praying to the one whose name is above all names in this age and the age to come. We are praying to the Lion of Judah. We're praying to the one who is truly the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I assure you, he is worthy of it all. He is worthy of your devotion. He is worthy of your love. And so let us surrender to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for a gospel that changes us deep within our hearts and our souls. And that, Father, those changes create a ripple effect of how The institutions and the things of our lives can also and need also to be changed. And so, Father, I just want to first and foremost speak to and and pray for the lingering effects of the prejudice and the racism and all the different things that we have experienced in our society and how it continues to exist in all of our hearts, God. If there's anything within any of us that is offensive, God, we ask that you would remove it from us. God, that you would heal us from within. God, we're so quick to point to institutions and programs and practices, God. Help us to look within our own hearts, our own souls, God. And maybe perhaps more than we need to worry about what needs to be torn down in our society, Father, let us build up your church. Let us hear in this place, in this room, in these moments, Set aside the distinctions of society and look to our left and to our right and see brother and sister. God, I think about where you are going to take us when we leave here today to our respective homes, all the different relationships that we have that represent loved ones and friends. God, help us to see each and every one of those moments and those conversations as a way to worship you find meaning and to find significance. God, let us truly begin to demonstrate that sort of surrender in every capacity. Because, Father, we know that you are worthy. (laughs) You are so worthy. And so, Father, may we declare your worthiness now to you and to each other to the praise and glory 
of Jesus our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.